Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. The commands of Christ is our message this morning. The commands of Christ. There are some things that each of us need to make happen in our spiritual lives. This is the fourth and final installation of this particular part. If you're out in the world, you will have conversation with people now and then. And occasionally they will throw in a quote from the Bible. Only when you check, it's not actually in there. It might be a quote from Mother Teresa or maybe Mother Goose, I don't know, but it is not a quote from the Bible. It's a misquote. For example, God never gives us more than we can handle. That's an often given quote. The idea is to give encouragement to somebody because they're facing and some comfort for their difficulties. And it is a nice sentiment, to be sure. The problem is it's not actually from the Bible. In fact, the truth is actually often quite opposite of that. Life often, God often allows more than we can handle. But here's what he does say about that. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, what he actually says is, God is faithful. I'm not the faithful one always, but God is faithful. He, He's the one who always makes a way to escape. Thank God, so that we can bear it. And then there's the uh, quote that some believe also are from the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Well, people usually use this quote to remind us that God will help you, to be sure. But you've got to put in some effort yourself. Well, the answer is that is half correct. But it does provide a good lead-in for us in our message this morning. Now, in Scripture, there is a principle that Bible teachers have coined a good phrase, and I like it. It's called the 100-100 principle. Maybe you've heard of it. The 100-100 principle. And that is, each of us as believers, is 100% responsible for our actions and for what happens. But at the same time, we are 100% dependent upon God's power to make that happen. That's called the 100-100 principle. That is validated throughout the both Old and New Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, 127, a psalm written either for Solomon or by Solomon, we're not sure, but it says for Solomon, Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't work. What it means is that it's vain. We could work, we can, and we must work. In fact, the idea here is that it's not wrong to work to exhaustion to build your house. Now, that's not referring to an actual building. It's referring to your life and your family. But with all the work you're putting into your life and your family, if you don't have God's help, then it's vain. It's going to be empty. The idea is that it's going to, you're going to not get all that you should have and you could have. 
Here's the point. The builder does 100% of the tangible work. God does and supplies 100% of the intangible enabling power. And so the message is clear. If you and I do not have God involved in our endeavors, any endeavor, it will not realize its best. And in fact, very likely will see its worst. That's true in our marriages. That's true in our role as parents, our work, and certainly our spiritual walk. We need to learn to lean on Jesus and lean hard. Jesus himself said this in John 15 and verse number 5. He said, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And so we want to do what God wants us to do. And we need God's help. If we expect God to do everything without our effort, we are sadly mistaken. And so we're in the command of Christ series. So they're commands. We're 100% responsible to make them happen. But at the same time, thank the Lord, we are 100% dependent upon God's power to make that happen. Throughout the New Testament, there are 900 or so commands. Now, these are not suggestions. God said, you need to make these happen. Make these happen in your life. They're wonderful, very helpful directives. And we should purpose, with God's help, to get them done. We have been going over for a few weeks now the let commands, L-E-T. The idea here is that these are ones that God wants us to let happen in our life. It's not meaning maybe it could happen. It's more like what Jesus said when he said, let not your heart be troubled. What he was saying was, don't let yourself get so worked up and so worried. And so today is part four and the final part of this particular series. Things that we are responsible to make happen. Is work a four-letter word? Well, the answer is no. Though it has four letters in it, it's not what we would call a four-letter word. But it seems as though sometimes too many in the modern church view Christian disciplines with um, a eye, a side eye. They don't like it. A union shop steward addressed a union meeting. Comrades! We've agreed on a new deal with the management. We will no longer work four days a week. Hooray, goes the crowd. We will finish work at 4 p.m., no longer at 5. Hooray, goes the crowd once again. We will start work at 10 a.m., not 9 a.m. Hooray. And we have a 150% pay raise. Hooray. And we will only work on Sunday, on Wednesdays. Silence. And then a voice from the back asks, every Wednesday? (laughs) And you know, sometimes we get so much given to us, we don't realize the work that we need to do. You know, there are wonderful godly disciplines that God expects from us. We need to put in the work on Wednesdays and on Sundays and every day of the week. And so today, things that we need to make happen in our Christian life. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for the great truths of your word. And Lord, help us to remember that we are 100% responsible. Thank you, Lord, for giving us 100% of your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Now today we are going to hang in the beautiful epistle of 1 Peter. It is an especially poignant letter, especially for us in the 21st century. 
In chapter 5, the apostle states that he's writing from Babylon. Well, he's actually writing the letter the Holy Spirit gave it to him while he's in Rome. But he used the name of the ancient Mesopotamian city as a metaphor, given the fact that that day, that modern Rome, had given itself over to idol worship and the false gods of power and greed. And may I say that today, America, in the 2020s, is fast becoming Babylon of old. Here we are, as people, supposedly the most modern nation in the world, and today we worship at the footstool of wicked celebrities like their little god. We swallow junk science, we allow a socialist academia, and we vote in anti-God leaders. In this letter, Peter spoke much about facts just like that. And he said, we're facing some serious problems here among our people. And that persecution was coming from Babylon. And he was anticipating the tyranny that was about to come in the final years of evil Nero. It was coming. And let me just say, it is coming for us as well. And so he called upon his fellow believers to keep the faith. Now some have called the book of First Peter the Job of the New Testament. And so he says, be encouraged. God's got a plan for your life. And so this morning we're going to examine four final steps in God's 100-100 plan. We are 100% responsible, but at the same time, we are 100% dependent upon his power. And so we're continuing our outline here. Number 13, represent Scripture faithfully in all you do. Now, if you wanted to find the first 12, you can go back and get those on the app. If you're here for the first time, just pick it up here today and you can go back. Represent Scripture faithfully in all that you do. Yes, God wants us to always stand up for Him. And so let's read verse 11 of First Peter 4 together, would you? We're going to read verse 11 together. So get your King James Version out there, your authorized version. And let's read it out loud, would you? All right, let's begin. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, oh, let's start over again. Let's all say it together. Ready? If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What he's saying here is literally when anybody, that is, any believer, speaks, and it's an established fact, we're going to talk, and some talk more than others, to be sure. Some are, as they say, long in the mouth. I like what the old country boy said. Some people talk so much they could lick a skillet in the kitchen from the front porch. What are these long talking that we're supposed to do? Well, God says make sure that you always talk the oracles of God. The Greek word there is logion, a form of the word logos, which is familiar perhaps, which just simply means words. It's a translated words often in the New Testament. Logion, however, is not the total word, which Logos is, but it means 
a particular word or uh, a saying or in the sense of uh, an utterance. It was a common Greek word used in the secular world, and it was done for things that were otherworldly utterances. And still today, there are fake hucksters, sometimes pagan, other times mainline religion, who give predictions about what is happening, and they call them oracles or other words, but it comes down to the same thing. These are logions, these are oracles, these are special words from the gods or from the powers that be, you know. Mostly illusion, of course, but sometimes just outright deception and demonic. Now, back in the day, a false prophet or prophetess would tell fortunes. They would do so by observing the movements of fish in tanks or listening to the calls of birds or maybe watching the paths of snakes. And so then they would be able to predict business success or failure, happy or tragic marriage. It was then, as now, that's just a bunch of hooey. There's nothing to that. But Peter said this. He said, when you speak, don't be like that. Don't be like one who tells an an oracle, an utterance, a logion. He said, no, when you speak, speak as God's people. You don't need energy zones or auras or anything like that. Speak as though it were the word of God. Now, the oracles of God is an interesting phrase. It is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. For example, Deacon Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, referred to the Old Testament oracles. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, he said, An angel spake to him in the Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. And so we were given these lively oracles. Oracles. The idea is, if you really want to help others, make sure that you speak as though it were from God. First and foremost, we ought to speak in keeping with the revealed will of God. That's Scripture. The word Scripture is the word Greek word grapha, which means the written word. And so, we don't have any right to get outside of the written word it's given to us, whether publicly or privately whether to a group or whether one-on-one, whether in a pulpit or in a small group, or you're just having family Bible time with your husband or wife or your children, whenever you talk, whatever we write, whatever we sing, whatever we preach, whatever we teach, make sure that it gels with Scripture as best as possible. We have a responsibility to always say things that, as far as we know, are in keeping with Scripture. And then he adds, so much the more... Because we see the day of Christ approaching. Go back a few verses to verse 7. In verse 7 of chapter 4 it says, But the end of all things is at hand. The end. Now he's not meaning everything ceases to be. It just means the end of this era. The rapture of Christ. The imminent return of Christ is coming. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Every day since the day of Pentecost, even before that, Until the present time, Jesus could have come at any moment. That makes the days that we live in the last days. It was the last days during that time. That was 2,000 years ago. And that's exactly how good brother James said it in chapter 5, verse 9 of the book of James. He said, the judge standeth before the door. That's judge Jesus, not judge Judy. 
just Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has his hand and he's rattling the doorknob. You know what it's like to be at home and you hear your loved one pull in the driveway, open the, the uh, garage door, or put their hand on the handle there. Oh, my lover is coming. Well, get it in your heart today and in your mind. Eternity is not something way out yonder. It is soon. And His coming could be right around the corner. The Lord is coming soon. And in the final hours, what is needed most is what? Truth. You know, a person's dying declarations, a person's final words, are known in common law, I read this week. Don't presume to be a lawyer. But it is known as dying declarations. And they hold special weight as evidence in a trial. Truth. We don't have time to waste on error. God says we need to speak as though we are giving dying declarations because these are the last days. And in fact, we are going to be with the Lord. But there's a problem here this morning, and that is this. Where can we find truth? I mean, it's all well and good to say we need to speak truth. But where do we find truth? The situation today is tragic in America, really around the world. And it's just as bad as the wonderful Old Testament prophet who thundered. His name was Isaiah. He charged a nation. He said, you know, we as a nation are losing God's favor because we are refusing to deal with the truth. I want you to hear his colorful speech. Look at Isaiah 59, verse 14. And the judgment is turned backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Truth is fallen in the street. Truth is so disregarded, it's like just a piece of litter to be walked on. And so the question we ask ourselves this morning is, where do we find truth in a time when truth has fallen to the street? Well, the first mice we might imagine we could find truth. Let's go to the universities and the schools of our nation. And let's find truth. Well, there are some wonderful Christian teachers in the public system, and they are doing their best. And yet, the overwhelming flavor of public education is secularism, downright humanism, racist CR theories at some times, and in some cases, outright pornography given to children, where they allow deviant drag queens to groom the children for their ideas. Now, friends, we cannot find truth in the school systems. Truth is fallen in the street. Well, then, uh, how about let's go find truth in the government? Well, anybody with a brain knows that anybody who speaks truth in the public sector will be canceled and even denied office because they have spoken the truth. Truth is fallen in the street. Well, where can we find truth? God says we need to speak truth. We need to have these dying declarations because the Lord is coming. And make sure that you are a truth speaker. Well, we used to be able to trust medical science. Maybe medical world will give us the truth. But unfortunately, sometimes they have succumbed off, all too often they have succumbed to an agenda like is the transgender lies. 
truth has fallen in the streets. We can't go to the schools. We can't go to the government. We can't always trust the medical world. Well, I tell you what let's do. Let's go to the business community. Maybe they will speak the truth. Well, again, there's some wonderful Christian businesses, great Christian business people. But for the most part, here's the reality. If they know it's going to hurt their bottom line, if they know truth's going to hurt their bottom line, they won't speak the truth. Truth is fallen in the street. Where can we find truth in a world like this? And that's what Peter was saying. He said there's no truth. So you've got to be the truth givers. What about our families? Surely we can find truth in our families. Well, it'd be nice if families could agree on what truth was. But too often, culture and misinformation has everybody just scratching their heads and we don't know what truth is. Truth has fallen in the street. Well, then really the only institution left that could maybe give us truth would be religion. Where can we find truth? Let's go to religion. Well, how about going down to the mosque or the temple? Seriously? Do we feel like we're going to find truth there? Well, then churches. Churches would have the truth. Yes, but in, <laughs> but in too many cases. Here's the problem. They have been silenced because they don't want to offend the woke. And they want to keep the income coming in. And so they've become so inclusive, they have lost their savor. But friends, here's what I'm saying this morning. There has always been one place until the rapture comes, and that is a Bible-believing, local, New Testament, Christ-preaching church. And that's why. Yes, amen. And that's why here's what Jesus said. He said, Bible-believing churches, listen, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. There you have it. Where do we find truth? You find it in a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring church. In any society, in any community, in any nation, the church is the pillar and ground of a church, of a community. Get in a church and Love a church and start churches and be in that church and pray for that church and stand for religious liberty because they are the ones who hold truth. They have a stewardship in their hands. My friend, you can't find truth anywhere else that you can trust. No wonder the devil inspired, gullible, and too often corrupt leaders to shutter the church doors during that virus event. Keep Walmart open, that's fine. But close the churches. Why? Because truth is inconvenient for some. I'll tell you this morning, that old hymn says it best in my mind. There's a great day coming. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory. Hallelujah. His truth is marching on. And here's what you know, that until the day that Jesus comes, truth will march on. It's at the pillar and the ground of the truth. And that is in a local New Testament church. Thank God for it. It is the place where truth is found. Represent Scripture faithfully. Live it and teach it and sing it and do our best. We have a responsibility to do it right. Number 13, represent Scripture faithfully. Number 14, renounce any personal sin. Now Peter says, because these are the final days, we need to make sure that we have a clean life. 
not only speak right, but live right. Our walk should match our talk. Look at verse 15. But let, there's that phrase again, let, it's a let command. Let none of you suffer. And he gives four things here. As a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Because the Lord's return is that any moment, you are going to have a target on your back from the Antichrist. Troubles are coming and expected, but also find a sense of consolation in it, that you are on the side of Christ. And then he says, I want you to take a moment, though. If you're getting some uh, suffering, if you're getting some persecution, I want you just to stop for a minute and do a quick self-evaluation. I want you to ask yourself, are you bringing any of this on yourself because of your lifestyle? Have you made some unbiblical choices? And then he gives four very specific concerns. Actions that are unacceptable and inexcusable. What he's saying is don't blame the Antichrist for coming against you when in fact these are some things you've done. Notice what he says first. Murder. Murder. Well, that says, well, okay, I, I get that. We should never murder. And I think for most church people, it seems like a remote possibility, right? I don't usually plan on doing that. But you know, and I think most of us church folks are kind of like the Quaker. The old farmer came downstairs one night. He heard someone down in his downstairs, only to find a burglar there. And so he said, raising his gun, friend, I mean thee no harm, but thou art standing where I'm about to fire. <laughs> We're kind of like that, right? We don't mean to hurt anybody, but um, but here's my take on what, uh, what uh, Peter is saying here. They were living in crazy days, and we are living in crazy days. When I said Rome was like Babylon, and when I said America is like Babylon, I'm telling you folks, this is modern day Rome right now. Crazy times. Persecution was rampant. I mean, anybody with a brain can see what's happened in our country over the last decade, the last 20 years. Now, the fact is, now listen closely. Paul, Peter was saying, you may be called upon to defend your family and yourself or somebody else's family. And that's perfectly acceptable to do that. In fact, here's what Jesus said about that. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 36, Jesus himself, now this is our loving, kind Savior. He said self-defense is a very real possibility. He said the time may come when people who don't have a sword will have to sell your garment and buy one. Now nobody wants to think about coming to a time like that. But the fact is self-defense doctrine in the Bible is very biblical. But here's the point. What he was saying was, and this is what Peter is saying. Yes, you have a right to defend yourself, and certainly your family and others. But you never have a right to murder somebody. So with everything that's going to be coming at us, and they're going to be coming at our families, just be careful. Don't go out there and just deliberately murder somebody. And then he adds, he said, the same thing goes with stealing. And I don't think they would just steal to steal, but if you have some thinking in your mind, just be careful about that. Or an evildoer. What he's, pointing, what he's simply saying is, don't complain of mistreatment 
than suffering if you are culpable for something that is done wrong. Take your responsibility, change your actions, and then go to the work for the betterment of mankind and for the glory of God. And so he said, be careful about these things. And then the Holy Spirit decided to add one final thing. He said, don't be a busybody. Now, I must be honest with you. When I was reading through that list, I thought, murder, okay, that's a bad thing. Thief, that's a bad thing. Evil, man, that's, that's bad. Busybody, that doesn't seem to fit that list. That's in my mind. But um, at first glance, it doesn't seem to kind of gel there. Now, this is a point where I think actually it's wise to do what Paul said. He said to Timothy, he said, Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is a point where you have to actually rightly divide. You can dig into a lexicon. Now, when I, dig, when I did that, I found out that this word there, busybody, is a very unique word, not used in very many places. It is two very long Greek words. I think it's like about eight or nine syllables. There's no way I could pronounce it. I, do, I can pronounce one word, and that was episkopos, which means pastor or bishop or overseer. But the other word is, means other people. So if you combine the two words, here's what it means. Someone that overlooks, oversees, or someone who is looking at other people's business. That's what it actually means. He says, don't be somebody who is just constantly looking at something that doesn't apply to you. Now, most scholars believe it's not really just meaning about somebody who's a gossip. Now, that's bad enough. Four pastors met for a friendly gathering, as pastors do sometimes. During the conversation, one pastor said, you know, our people come to us, they pour out their hearts, they confess certain sins and needs. I think we ought to do the same. You know, confession is good for the soul. They all agreed. One of them said he had a problem losing his temper. And on occasion, he let out a few salty words. Everybody nodded their head. The second confessed of liking to smoke cigars. And the third said, you know, he liked golf so much, he would fake being sick so he could play on Sundays. It's terrible. Well, then they came to the fourth one, but he wouldn't say anything. The others pressed him. They said, come on now, we confessed our sins. What's your secret advice? Finally, he answered, it's gossiping. And I can hardly wait to get out of here this morning. Gossip is bad enough to be sure. But that's not what this is talking about, I don't believe. I believe what it's talking about here is being involved in revolutionary, disruptive activity. Interfering with and meddling in the orderly flow and function of reasonable leadership. It could be in the business world or a job, such as being involved in shutting down a business or hurting an owner's finances through unnecessary striking. It could mean disorderly church life. Don't join the rabble and, you know, try to do something that's not good. I think an excellent example could be what happens here at the church and our relationship with government. You know, uh, developing this property from 23 years ago, we've had to deal with all kinds of building codes. And uh, some of them are necessary, to be sure, but I must admit, and anybody, I think even the oftentimes the officials will admit that they are unnecessary, some of them are unnecessary and excessive. And yet, we've always complied. At a great cost of time and money, we've never resisted the, we've never 
campaign for a resistant county uh, government uh, campaign. We've tried to follow their mandates without being silly. We don't get permits for our potlucks or things like that. But um, there are other times when we don't agree, and we cannot agree. Like in 2020, when they told churches, we must violate Scripture and forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And when that happened, we said, I was sorry. As Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. And I think what Peter was saying here is this. Pick your battles wisely, folks. The, the stuff's going to be coming at you. Just be careful. Be careful about the mountains you die on. Because there's no need to suffer unnecessarily. And frankly, I don't know what our country's coming to in the future. But I do have this sense. And it's going to take incredible godly discernment to know what to do. Because like Peter, we don't want to do one thing. But at other times, we certainly cannot agree. And then number 15, not only represent Scripture faithfully in all you do, not only renounce any personal sin, but then rejoice in the opportunity to suffer for Christ. Now, it's never enjoyable, but it is a privilege. Look at verse 16 says, If any if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God on this behalf. You could paraphrase it this way. If you're going through adversity because you've lived as a Christian, don't be ashamed of what you have to deal with. If you suffer for your faith because you've done right at your job or you've tried to live a peaceable life or you've been a good citizen, a good neighbor, a hard worker, and all the while you're proclaiming the Lord, you're just not making a... You know, a pest of yourself, but you're certainly trying to tell others about the Lord. If you suffer because of your stand for the Lord, never be ashamed. In fact, what it says is, let him glorify God on this behalf. What a statement. He goes on to say, if you've suffered as a Christian, if you've suffered as a Christian, what a beautiful term, Christian. Now, actually, in the Bible, most Christians didn't refer to themselves as Christians. They refer to themselves as brothers or sisters. As in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, when they were bringing about a new apostle, they said, men and brethren. That's why we say brother so-and-so or sister. Very biblical. There's an old Gaither gospel chorus that says, you will notice we say brother and sister around here. Well, there's a reason for that, because that's actually the most biblical way they refer to each other as brother and sister. They also call themselves the way. In Acts chapter 19, it says the way or that way. And I love that statement because it is a way. It's not just a thing you think about once in a while. It's a whole lifestyle. It's a way of life. And that's what John said in chapter 14 where Jesus is the way. He is the truth and the life. But the idea of Christian actually first came about in Acts chapter 11. And the Gentiles referred to that group of people as Christians. And it actually wasn't meant to be uh, something positive. It was actually meant as a derision. It was dismissive. It was like an insult. Today, people call Christians, they'll say, you're a nationalist, or you're a colonialist, or you're a fascist, or if you believe the Bible, you're this or that. I mean, there are all kinds of words I hear tossed around. But Christian, Christian, what a great term. Here in the Bible, it says you are a Christian. If you suffer as a Christian, own it. If you suffer as a Christian, 
count it as a mark of glory. The old hymn says, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Shall I fear to own His cross or blush to speak His name? In the name, the precious name of Him who died for me, through grace I'll win the promised crown, whatever my cross may be. And so he says this, If you suffer as a Christian, don't ever be ashamed. Ever. Because it is a privilege to be called a Christian. Because what you're doing, as it says in verse 13 of the same chapter, inasmuch as you suffer as a Christian, you are partaking Christ's suffering. That is, you're bearing some of that. As we sang a few moments ago, the Jesus way is to bear somebody's burdens. I want to do the Jesus way. And so he said, if you suffer as a Christian, remember this, it is though you were bearing some of the burden of the sufferings of Christ. In fact, one little thing I saw and I'll share with you. Take the word Christian. Remove the letter A from the term and then transpose it to the beginning. And what do you see? Look at it. A, put it up there please, the black one. There you go. Christian. Take the A, transpose it to the beginning. All the same amount of words or letters. And notice what it says. A, Christ in. And may that be my attitude. Always, I am one who has Christ in me. And that's what being a Christian is. Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe said, you know, Roman law required each citizen to pledge their loyalty to the emperor. Once a year, the citizen would take a pinch of incense and put it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. But the Christian would not do that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 3, they would say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I say this morning, in 2023, there are those who would like us to bow before and say, Caesar is Lord. But you and I will not do that. No way. I will not bow to the Caesars of this world. I only bow to Jesus Christ and I say, God, Jesus is Lord. Dean, this morning we are here. We are here to give the glorious name of Jesus all that is due. It has been said, faith makes a Christian. Life proves a Christian. Trial confirms a Christian. But death crowns a Christian. Someone once said the Christian life doesn't get easier, but it does get better. And thank God that it does. Well, here we are. Finally, number 16, recognize God's purposes. Number 13, represent Scripture faithfully in all you do. Number 14, renounce any personal sin. Number 15, rejoice any opportunity to suffer for Christ. You're a Christ one, Christ in you. And then number 16, Recognize God's purposes. Pain without any purpose is meritless. You have to be a weird person to enjoy pain. We don't enjoy that. We certainly know there's a purpose. And at verse 19, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit their keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Boy, that verse is just so full of wonderful things. First of all, if you live for Christ, you can expect suffering. It's going to happen. So he said, be happy. Now he's not saying be 
ha-ha, happy, happy. He's talking about find a way to find some consolation, some joy in it. Notice what he says, wherefore. He begins with the statement, wherefore. What he's saying is, based on what's happened, what we're talking about, based on all the suffering, understand that suffering is God's way of making us effective. Those that are in that world of Lawn maintenance tell us that sometimes when the lawn is drought a little bit, it sinks its roots deeper down because the stress has caused it to go deeper down. That only makes it stronger. Then notice what he says. If because of suffering, if you've had to sink your roots down farther into Christ, that's good. Commit then the keeping of your souls to Him and well doing. The word commit there is a banking term. It means to deposit something for safekeeping. As you go through suffering, take your soul and give it to God. Every day, your soul, take your life, your health, your finances, your marriage, take your job, take everything and say, Lord, it's all yours. I commit it to you. I'm going to bank on you, God. I know you've got a good plan in all this. I put my life in the hands of the Lord. How could I possibly think that I could do that? Well, how could we do it? Look what it says. Here's how we can do it. He's a faithful creator. Did you know that's the only place in the Bible that phrase is used? Only place. He's a creator. Well, if he's the creator, if I'm giving it back, I'm just giving it back to the one who created it. God gave me my life. God gave me my everything. He gives every breath I breathe. I give giving my life back to the one who created me. And he's the one who's most capable of caring for it. If he created me, he knows how I tick. If he made me, then He knows everything about me. He's a faithful Creator. I can trust Him with my family. I can trust Him with my reputation. And I can certainly trust Him with my needs. And that's why He said, Always remember, my God shall supply all your needs. It's an interesting word, that word commit. It's a banking word. And it's the same word that Jesus used on the cross. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands... I commit. There's that same word. I bank on you. I give everything to you. In the midst of the most intense suffering ever known, God the Son banked Himself in God the Father's hands. And we can trust Him because He is a creator. Then notice what He says. He said, do it in well-doing. Meaning, just keep doing right. Don't stop doing right. Just keep doing right. Just keep doing as Elizabeth Elliot says, then the next right thing. Just keep doing it. Why? Because everything that comes into our hands has been passed through the fingers of our Lord. And that's what it says in verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. It is the will of God. As a Christian, He suffered. We're going to suffer. There's going to be some price to be paid. Perhaps your family has been ostracized. You and your wife have been Maybe said some people said a few things about you because of your serious faith in the Lord. Just bank on the Lord. Just bank on Christ. Say, you know what? I just committed all to the Lord. I just bank on Him. I've committed it all to Him. Maybe they passed you over at work and said, don't even mention the name of Jesus. Of course, you can swear and say the name of Jesus. But don't mention the name of Jesus. You know what? Just bank on the Lord. Just say, Lord, You're my Creator. You know all things about me. I give You my job, my reputation, my life, my finances. It's all yours. 
Andy Johnson Flint said it this way, God has not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn, pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide. Never a mountain, rocky or steep, never a river, turbid or deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the laborer, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ, and if such is the case, it's Jesus' way. On September 15th, 1732, two Moravian missionaries did the unthinkable. They had been desiring for a long time to go to the West Indies to bring the gospel. At every turn, they were opposed and they were getting discouraged until they finally found a ship to take them to St. Thomas. They did. But they said, once you get there, you will never be allowed to preach. And so Leonard Dauber and David Nitschman said, if we're not allowed to preach, we will become slaves ourselves so that we can give the gospel to those dear people. And that's exactly what they did. And when they did that, they paved the way for the greatest move of missions in the Caribbean's ever known. They were willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Not ashamed. I own the name of Jesus, and I own it because He's given it to me. Our heads are bowed. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, Thank you for joining us.